Welcome to Exhale, a podcast series where we explore topics on respiratory care. Your hosts are Mark Russell, the Marketing Communication Manager, and Jansen Lanier, National Sales Manager and Respiratory Therapist for Vitalgraph US, a global leader in respiratory diagnostics. We interview today Kenny Mendez, CEO with the Allergy and Asthma Foundation of America, a not-for-profit organization. Founded in 1953, the AAFA is the oldest asthma and allergy patient group in the world and is the leading patient organization for people with asthma and allergies. Well, welcome, Kenny, to our podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to meet you guys. Likewise, absolutely. So, hey, please give us a little background on yourself, education experience, and what your current responsibilities with the Asthma and Allergy Foundation. Well, well, sure. There's a long story and a short story. I'll give you the short story. I'm president and CEO of the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America, or we call ourselves AFA is the acronym. We uh, represent the 65 million people in the U.S. with asthma and allergies. Uh, we're a nonprofit. We're the oldest nonprofit patient advocate group in the U.S. I got into this because two of my three kids have had asthma and allergies, and I have asthma and allergies myself. Unfortunately, they got my DNA. But I've been in the nonprofit world for for a while. I uh, worked in the corporate world previously have an MBA and kind of got into this because I'm very much mission driven and that's what we're all about, you know, helping people and trying to promote our mission. Absolutely. Absolutely. So your mission is at the AFA is to give more uh, patient awareness of what asthma is and allergy is affecting folks here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a couple of things. You know, our mission statement is that we're dedicated to saving lives and reducing the burden of disease for people with asthma and allergies through support, advocacy, education, and research. So those pillars of support, advocacy, education, and research are really our programmatic things. So we have a large online community that um, you could log on for free, and there are support networks there. This was well before Facebook ever came out, where we've got paid staff, we've got a medical scientific board that will answer questions for anyone. Once you're diagnosed with allergies or asthma or food allergies, you know, you, you leave the doctor's office in a blur. So you really need a support group in a community and a trusted advocate who can tell you how to manage your disease. And then separately, we use that community and we use what we do to try and get patient-friendly policies passed on a federal level and a state level that will benefit our community. Great. So what are the facts and figures of asthma and allergy here in the United States? What are we looking at with the population? You know, I talked about the 65 million Americans with asthma and allergies, but that breaks down into kind of different components and their various overlaps. So let's start with asthma specifically. There are 25 million Americans that have asthma. So that's about one in 13 Americans, and then including 8% of adults and 7% of children. So about 20 million U.S. adults age 18 and over have asthma. So that, that's, those are the numbers there. What I always want to tell people, over 3,000 people die a year from asthma, and it's a serious condition. So it's really important to have your asthma managed. See a specialist when you can, because it, it can be very challenging and tragic. One of the most difficult things of my job is hearing these stories of people who have died from asthma, and it hasn't been well-controlled asthma, and it's just tragic to hear about these things. Then there's the food allergy and then the general allergic rhinitis allergy side of things. 
There are about 50 million Americans that have experienced allergies each year, and it's the sixth leading chronic illness in the United States. So there are food allergies, and there are nine common food allergies by law in the United States, but there are 12 in other countries. And then there's also allergic rhinitis or hay fever, which is different from food allergies. But the food allergies, it's got a lot of visibility because you can have anaphylaxis to food allergies, which can result in an emergency room visit or even death. And there are about 30,000 emergency room visits a year because of an allergic reaction to one of those top allergens there. So that's really critical. Then when you get to the indoor and outdoor allergies, this grass and weed, trees, mold, spores, dust mites, cockroaches, cat and dog, that all drives allergic rhinitis, which could also be a trigger for asthma. So all these things are connected. I understood from you that there's food allergies of uh, nine different categories here and 12 different across the world. Why the difference? In the U.S., we were a little bit slow here. And in fact, we just got the ninth allergen listed this year, which is sesame. By law, this translates into food package labeling, where the nine allergens here in the United States by law have to be listed if it's in your food. The UK, EU, Australia, and other countries, Canada, have more allergens listed. I think the US is just slow to list them here, but it's well accepted in other parts of the world. Interesting. I was on your website and it discussed the asthma bell. What is the asthma bell? One of the things we try and do to kind of amplify awareness about asthma is we do an asthma capitals report. So we look at the 100 largest cities in the U.S. and which ones are most challenging to live in with asthma. So the asthma belts are the ones primarily in the Midwest and then the Northeast along the I-95 corridor where asthma, according to our criteria for the asthma capitals report, there are more cities that are more challenging to live in. So in that asthma capitals report, we look at three things, prevalence, mortality, and then emergency room visits. So the combination of those three, where those are highest, are in these belts. This past year, we looked at, because of wildfires, there were a couple that showed up in the, uh, in the western states. But prior to this year, the asthma belts really showed up in the Rust Belt area and then the Northeast I-95 corridor. And what are some of the top cities in the country that are hit by this asthma belt? Sure. The, the top one this year was Allentown, Pennsylvania. So that, that's in the Northeast. And then you've got a bunch of other ones. You've got Massachusetts. There, there's some up in there. Baltimore, Maryland, Richmond, Virginia, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, New Haven, Connecticut. Going over to the Midwest, you've got Cleveland, Dayton, Oklahoma, Columbus, a lot in Ohio, Louisville, Kentucky. There are about 20 cities, I can't list them all here, that all fall into those asthma belts. And then you've got the outliers that I just mentioned, which primarily come from the wildfires, which are in Tucson, Arizona, and then uh, Fresno, California. Those are the main, main ones there. So are you working with any of these cities or, or major areas to help this? Are you doing anything to make the patients more aware of what's going on around them? 
Yeah, there, there are a number of things that we do. Some of it's on a policy front and we try and beat back bad regulations. So for example, two years ago, Springfield, Massachusetts was number one on the list for asthma capitals. This year it was replaced by Allentown, Pennsylvania. But in Springfield, Massachusetts, they were trying to erect what they believed was a clean energy plant that they were saying it was clean energy because they were burning wood pellets and wood pellets were looked at as recyclable or sustainable, which was kind of a weird way of looking at it. This project had been in the works for a while. We went in hard to basically use our asthma capitals report to say Springfield Mass is number, was number one on the asthma capitals list in 2020. And this plant does not make sense. And in fact, the state legislature or the community there uh, defeated it, so it didn't go up. So that's an example of where we go in and we work on a local basis to help use a report like this, which looks at all the, you know, 100 cities across the U.S., but amplifies what might be happening in that specific city. We also work in cities like New York and Washington, D.C. We're partnering with local organizations for home visits, because that's another thing that's really critical, where if you can, you, you have indoor air quality really has an impact. You guys know this as asthma educators or, or respiratory therapists. If you have pollen or carpets or pets indoors, you either want to vacuum that or you want to remove the carpets. And so having home visits can help people further upstream. So before they have asthma attacks, they know how to manage their indoor air environment. And what are you checking for when you do those home visits? So we partner with organizations that do that, and we help fund them. And they're looking for cockroaches, rodents, carpeting, mold, and those kinds of indoor air pollutants and irritants that have an impact on people with asthma and allergies. Uh, let's talk about diagnostic testing. So when somebody goes to the allergy asthma clinic, during COVID, a lot of those places were shut down only for the most severe of patients. So now that they're coming back open, they have a severe backlog. And so the, this is kind of a two-part question. One, how do you feel like they're going to get that backlog taken up? And two, what about those patients that were pushed aside because of COVID that got far worse over that time? I think we try to signal to people early, and in particular those with school children, is, is start early. So back in July, arranging appointments with specialists. So yep. I, I think you need to get in there and you need to have an appointment with your doctor. I mean, I experienced this myself during COVID was I was on some new medication. I wanted to see how it worked and the doctor did too, but they weren't doing any spirometry tests. Yep. So I, I, I had no ability to go in and blow a spirometry test. However, when things started to ease up, they adjusted. And the funny thing is I went to go see the doctor and they adjusted and they were able to, I went outside, they opened a window, they're on the ground floor and they gave me- um, Instruction to that. The, the, they gave me the device to blow into and uh, that's how they took the reading. So I think that I've heard from some specialists that they've made adjustments. Certainly my allergist did that, and, and I've heard about it from others. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I, I travel quite a bit, coast to coast, Canada and so forth. We've seen some sites that never close down, that never stop seeing patients, to mm -hmm. the patients similar to what you went to. Uh, we were in what? Uh, Colorado. Colorado, and the doctor has everybody come and, and do the spirometry outside. Uh, yeah just to prevent from any cross-contamination. You know, here's the thing from our perspective is that 
as long as you're adhering to the hospital's infectious control or the clinic's infectious control, you're using a BVF filter. So uh -huh. we recommend everybody use a BVF filter, no matter what device you have, you have a filter on there that stops any uh, bacteria or viruses, right? Yeah. And then three, adhere to the cleaning and hygiene of the manufacturer's device, right? So you yeah. want to make sure that you're cleaning it properly on a daily, if you can, in between patients, it's better. But I can promise you there have been facilities over the past few years that clean their device when they feel needed. And that just can't continue to be the yeah. case. So. No, absolutely. That's really important. I mean, you asked about my background prior to, to AFI. I was uh, working for Advamed, which is the trade association yeah. for the medical device industry. And it's very important to kind of follow the manufacturer's guidance and compliance in order to keep things clean and in shape. So what has the Asthma and Allergy Foundation been working on since we've had this COVID pandemic? Uh, wow. Well, that's been like drinking from a fire hose, uh, watching this thing yes. uh, evolve. I, I could tell you when this first came out in January of 2020, one thing we always do at the kind of now until the beginning of the year, we tell everyone to go out and get a flu shot because flu is a real problem for people with asthma and allergies. So when this first started coming out in 2020, we were monitoring it very closely and trying to bring some science and also truth so people could trust the information that we provided. So there was a lot of confusion early on about whether you have worse outcomes if you have asthma and you have COVID-19, and that's actually not the case. There's no scientific information that shows that you have worse outcomes. But earlier in the pandemic, the CDC was lumping in all respiratory illness. So we had to get our own community kind of educated about that. And then, you know, fast forward, you have a symptom chart that was very popular in the pandemic where we said, you know, what's the difference between cold, flu, allergies, or COVID-19? And then we had that translated into a, a Spanish and other languages. That was on our website. And then we had to deal with drug shortages. So for example, Albuterol is the rescue medication if you have an asthma attack. And it's normally in an emergency room delivered by a nebulizer, which, is, which uh, takes the albuterol from its liquid form and makes it into a mist. And once COVID hit, they could no longer use albuterol in its nebulizer mist form because they were worried about the excess mist that was in the air would infect others. So they went quickly to the... Uh, meter dose inhalers, the handheld inhalers that you think about when someone needs a, a puff of something. And there were shortages on that. So, you know, those were things that we had to deal with during the COVID pandemic to make sure that our community knew how to get them, that the FDA was aware of these shortages. And then finally, you know, when the uh, vaccines came out, there was a lot of hype about whether or not they were safe. And there were a couple of media reports early uh, after the very first vaccinations were given about allergic reaction to the vaccines. And we had to set the community straight that there was nothing in the vaccines if you had a food allergy that would cause an allergic reaction. So a lot of kind of misinformation out there that we try to be a trusted ally for our community to get the right messages out there. Climate change, I saw on your website that your organization has met with the EPA on pollution and climate change. What's, what was the outcome on that? 
Yeah, it was a great meeting. And the fact that we were invited to that acknowledged that the EPA now is, is really trying to raise the awareness level and amplify the connection between climate change and health. And people with asthma and allergies are the canaries in the coal mine. When we have bad air, you'll feel it if you have asthma. I've never done more media interviews this spring than talking about climate change and the, the bad allergy season. And allergies can be a trigger for asthma. So clean air policies, clean energy policies, we're all supportive of those initiatives coming out of the EPA. And we just reaffirmed what their positions are. And we also tried to amplify health disparities and health inequities because we did a report last year on asthma disparities and found it was a 15-year update. And we found that while the incidence of asthma has declined slightly, since 2010, Black Americans are still three times more likely to die from asthma, five times more likely to be treated in an emergency room, and Black women still have the highest mortality rate of any ethnic group. So trying to get those messages across to the EPA and try and connect climate change to health and how it disproportionately impacts disadvantaged communities was a really important message to get, get through, and we want to continue to amplify that. So can you tell us about the concept of peak week? Yeah, so this September, the third week in September, is where asthma hospital stays almost become epidemic. Oh, wow. And it's, it, it's, it's kind of the perfect storm where kids go back to school, they catch colds, it's the fall allergy season, and all these things are irritants and triggers for asthma. So what happens in September is you have the highest number of hospitalizations for asthma shortly after school starts than in any other time of the year. And that's how we've got, got called this peak week. And the number of asthma hospital stays peak for school children first, then preschool children, and then adults. So it's kind of a cascading effect. And often these are triggered by initially a viral infection. So colds, for example, and then it gets more serious into asthma because as you know, when kids get back to school, go back to school, they're in an enclosed area, and a lot of contagious stuff goes flying around there, in addition to the allergens when they go back to school. Yeah, I don't envy the schools, especially during this time, because of the fact that, is it COVID? Is it allergies? Is it the flu? Is it a cold? You know, you, you have to go through the assessments to determine which is which. And a lot of times the schools are dismissing those children home so they can get tested to ensure that it's not COVID because they don't need a COVID outbreak, obviously. Yeah. So that, that's what I'm, I've got, I've got a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. So, so I, I've been through this, I've seen it. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and you must be on pins and needles too, because they can't get vaccinated. So yeah. it's a challenge. You know, I worry about that. The, the kids who can't get vaccinated, that's much better, but it's really the younger group. But Hopefully in the next few days, uh, we'll have some direction from the FDA on uh, getting vaccinations for younger kids. It's, it's looking positive. Yep, if I could go back to, you had mentioned you guys kind of had a side-by-side -side chart. I, I remember this, I shared it a few times on, on social media, you know, the difference between COVID, flu, cold, so forth. That worked well with the original COVID-19 variant, but now that we're getting into uh, the Delta, the Lambda, the Ohm, do we have a, a new side-by-side? -side? Because the, the symptoms are, are vastly different than, than original. Yes, we, the short answer is yes. We've updated it. 
I, I think that the length of the symptoms, I, th I think, are some of the things that are that are different, but we have updated it, and you can find it on our website, aafa.org, and then we've got a little bar at the top of it that says COVID-19 Resource Center, and you can find what the most up-to-date guidance is on that. Hey, I had a question back to Peak Week. Uh, it'll be interesting. How long have you been doing this Peak Week awareness uh, at your organization? Well, I've been at APA since 2018, so we've been doing it since then, but I'm sure we, we were doing it well before then. The asthma belts that you asked me about earlier, probably we only kind of discovered as we re retooled our asthma capitals report, probably, uh, I would say, two years ago or maybe three years ago. It, it's clear that September and peak week has always been around. It'll be interesting to see if there's any difference because a lot of these school children are, are some schools are mandating masks if it's going to affect that type of peak week, if that's going to be a factor. Yeah, did we see in 2020, was it lower than previous years because of the mask mandates? So let's think about this. 2020, the kids weren't really back in school yet as we were doing this because they spent most of the year right. outside of it. So there, there, there was a significantly lower because the kids weren't, weren't in school. And in fact, the incidence of flu, for example, which could be really harmful to people with asthma, was was almost non-existent when you look at the statistics for flu. Sure. So the fact that people were socially distancing, they were wearing masks, did have a positive impact. However, you still did have the issues as it related to allergies, because you've got fall allergies and spring allergies. I don't think we saw as many hospitalizations, because uh, it's really the confluence of the those three things that really happened. I think it was definitely better in 2020 during COVID. And, you know, we're waiting to see how it how it's shaking out now. This year, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. What is the education to let people know in schools and such of the peak week? Um, well, we've got a back to school. We've got an educational toolkit, which is available online and for free on our website. It's aafa.org. And uh, there's an education toolkit there, which gives best practices for schools and for parents to know what questions to ask and what to do when you bring your kids to school. So you can find all that on our website. Yeah. Be being in the industry that we're in, uh, I was one of the first ones to take it over to to where my kids go to school, go to their school nurse and say, hey, this is what I recommend. Take a look at this. Go to this website and so forth. So, uh, you know, the more the message we can get out there as being a resource, the better. Uh, that's why we continue to do these podcasts, because we we truly feel uh, it is best uh, for for our community, for our company, for you know our industry to, to be resources, to help get yeah. the word out, to show how one area is affected over another one. That's pretty much what we're here for. Well, and battling the, the truth, you know, be get, making sure that we get truthful and, and a more informative information out there for people to make good choices. Yeah, no, that, that's definitely true. We're aligned with that. I mean, one of the things that we do, it's our vision to be a trusted ally for the community. So getting the right information out there is very much part of our, our mission and, and our vision. Great. Well, Kenny, do you have anything else? Do you think we've covered everything here? Uh, any other suggestions that for our, our audience on our podcast? No, I, I think, again, uh, continuing to wear masks works works well. I think maybe you might have heard some of this. And, and again, this is going back to COVID. And I think we're over that hump. But a lot of people said, well, 
I can't wear a mask because I have asthma. And that's, that's not true. I mean, if your asthma is not well controlled, uh, if you can't breathe and you have asthma and you're wearing a mask, it, be, it probably means it's not well controlled and you should go see your doctor. So that's a message I want to leave for, for your team. I, I think we're probably over that now, but it, it's good to just plant that seed again that you should be able to wear a mask. And if you're not wearing a mask or, or you can't, you feel like you can't wear a mask, then it means your asthma is not well controlled and you need to go check in with your doctor. Absolutely. Good point. Well, Kenny, we really appreciate your time and taking an opportunity to get on our podcast. Again, thank you for, for joining us. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Exhale with Vitalograph. Your hosts are Mark Russell and Jansen Lanier. We hope you enjoyed what you heard today. Please leave a review and subscribe for new episodes. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again on Exhale with Vitalograph.